Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, so here's a joke. What do the snails say while riding on a turtle's back? Whee! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your party conversations. You just got a joke from musician Benjamin Booker. That'll help break the ice. Yes. He's got a new album out, and we'll hear more from him later. Plus, we speak with another overly talented young person, <laughs> actor Daniel Radcliffe. He stars in the new movie What If? Sans Juan. Also coming up, Eden Lepucky, author of California. That's the book, not the state. Shares a list. Writer Jeffrey Kluger introduces us to the narcissist next door and a stunt food roundup featuring ramen fries, rice burgers, and denolis. They're donut cannolis. We ate them so you don't have to. Tough gig. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've heard these headlines. President Obama says Russia is responsible for the escalating crisis in Ukraine. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have tied the knot. At the Emmy Awards last night, it was all good for Breaking Bad. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is a columnist for Vanity Fair magazine. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about the advent of a fashion movement called Toddler Core. So they're dressing up toddlers in suits. Does this involve depends? Well, I mean, it might. There's Diapers? definitely room in a lot of these garments for some sort of diaper. So this is a term wow. that that Salon coined um, okay. in reaction to Katy Perry wearing a onesie that was sort of a pizza pattern to uh, an art museum in Philadelphia oh. or people at Coachella wearing clothes with like little cheery pineapples on them or overalls and flowers on their hair. They're dressing like kids, basically. They're, yeah, that's that's the argument that Salon is making. Although I will say people in Philadelphia do dress up like pepperoni pizza. Like that's, that, that's a traditional <laughs> thing. It's just a thing. It's because they spill pizza on themselves? Is that the idea? It just makes it, just... It's like camouflage <laughs> right, exactly. when you're running from the cops. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so that's interesting. Overalls, though, I mean, that's uh, is that really a toddler thing or is that kind of a worker thing? I, I think it can be a worker thing, but I think that what the toddler core advocates are saying is that it's more of a fit. It's it's loose. Oh, it's kind of mm. like kids wear sort of, you know, easy to put on clothes. Yeah. And then when you combine that with, you know, cheery little hot dogs and things like that on <laughs> T-shirts, it, it does give the impression yeah. of, a, you know, and jelly shoes and heart-shaped sunglasses. It's, and this isn't a surprise, right, because youth culture loves... I feel like there's this infantilization of... Oh, yeah. We're just crawling back towards the womb, basically, next it's 20 years. Pretty we're, soon, yeah. we're going to be wearing our mothers. Yeah. <laughs> Uterine core. Oh, my gosh. Richard Lawson, thanks so much for the small talk. Goodbye. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1935, a concert in Los Angeles changed popular music. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It was 1935, and Benny Goodman's career was starting to swing. He'd been a star jazz clarinetist for years, but now he was the leader of his own big band. They even had a weekly gig in New York City, playing on a national radio show called Let's Dance. Although, admittedly, the band performed after midnight when the radio audience was mostly, well, asleep. Regardless, now Benny needed new tunes to play every week, and he needed to sound different than other bands on the show. So he made a bold decision. 
to hire musical pioneers like Fletcher Henderson to write him arrangements in the super rhythmic style called Hot Swing. Hipsters had dug that sound for years, but mainstream audiences were into milder, so-called sweet dance music. They didn't exactly embrace Benny's new sound. His band's first cross-country tour was a disaster. In Denver, audiences complained about the, quote, noise and demanded refunds. At another gig, the band played behind chicken wire while the displeased crowd hurled whiskey bottles at them. Dejected, Benny figured he'd finish the tour, then give up band leading forever. But then, a miracle. At L.A.'s Palomar Ballroom, the last stop of the tour, the audience went nuts for the hot swing numbers. The band's three-week engagement was extended to six. Suddenly, Benny's face was on the cover of every music mag in the country. It's widely considered the gig that launched the swing era. But why did it happen in L.A.? Benny chalked it up to the three-hour time difference between East Coast and West. See, in L.A., his sets on Let's Dance aired at the prime time of 9.30 instead of after midnight. So Angelinos had actually been awake to hear Benny's hot swing and to fall in love with it. The rest of the country soon caught on. For the next 10 years, swing was the most popular music in America. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Lindsay Moet. She is the bartender at the R Bar in Los Angeles, right down the street from where the Palomar Ballroom used to sit. And Lindsay, you heard the history. What cocktail did this story inspire you to make? We decided to make something called the Hep Benny. Hep being what everybody used to use as a word for sort of hip or cool or something like that. And Benny for... Good Mr. Benny that started the swing. Benny Goodman, I like it. And I, I've always loved the word hep. I don't know why everyone switched to hip. I sat here yesterday going through a bunch of the old slang and stuff is repeating now that you don't think people used to say. And then there's these great words that sort of just disappeared. Well, it's interesting. The way hipsterism works, I think, the more obscure, the better. So maybe the real hip people are saying hep and we didn't even know. Probably. I'm just not that <laughs> hip. So what's in your drink? Um, we decided to stick with local L.A. stuff and then incorporate fun poppy stuff of the swing and the jitterbug and everything that was going on back then. Okay. So we started with watermelon grown in Southern California. So we got a little watermelon juice? It's one ounce of fresh watermelon puree. Okay. I added a telecherry pepper simple syrup. What is a telecherry pepper? Telecherry pepper is a blend of peppercorn, black, red, white, and green peppercorn. Okay. What else are you going to add to this drink? We're going to add one ounce of Bombay Sapphire Gin. Shake that in the shaker just until it's cold. Strain that into an eight-ounce champagne flute mm-hmm. and top with the two ounces of champagne. And the champagne is there to give it a swing era feel, right? Yeah, they were using it for a lot of the dinners that they had at the Palomar Ballroom. It seemed so opulent in a time when people didn't really have too much. So, Leslie, are you interested in swing music? We studied it a bit in school. Really? Sure. Was smoking and drinking hooch also part of the curriculum? They, it was part of the course. How could you not? <laughs> So, Brendan, I love stories where it turns out music we think of as classic and safe caused uproars. You know what I mean? Yeah. People flinging whiskey bottles at Benny Goodman. Yeah. Stravinsky debuted Rites of Spring and the audience rioted, that, <laughs> that sort of thing. At, at John Tesh, a pillow fight broke out. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Very soft pillows. That's right. I'm guessing. It was an intense but smooth fight. <laughs> 
Anyway, people, uh, our cocktails are also intense and smooth. Yeah. And you can find the recipes for them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Our guest today is author Eden Lepucky. Her debut, the apocalyptic novel California, got an assist from comedian Stephen Colbert when he urged his viewers to buy it. It's since become a bestseller. Here's Eden to tell us about it and her list. Hello, my name is Eden Lepucky. California takes place about 40 or 50 years in the future. It's about a husband and wife who leave a devastated, ruined Los Angeles to go live by themselves in the wilderness. California is always the first in a lot of things to, you know, to put avocado on your sandwiches, to do isometric exercises, to look toned. Um, And I think the end of the world will also occur in California first. We're always the first. So here is a list of cultural artifacts that are either about California, inspired by California, or encapsulate the California state of mind. So the first one is called East of Eden by John Steinbeck, uh, published in 1952. This is one of my favorite big, juicy, epic novels. And it's about really one family and two brothers. And I got to say, I love their mother, who they don't know is their mother, and she runs a brothel, and she's just pure, monstrous evil. Kathy was chewing a piece of meat, chewing with her front teeth. Samuel had never seen anyone chew that way before. And when she had swallowed, her little tongue flicked around her lips. Samuel's mind repeated, Something, something. Can't find what it is. Something wrong. My parents are from New Jersey, and they believe that California is the promised land, that nothing can go wrong here, because maybe, because it doesn't snow. Um, And it's in East of Eden, this notion of this family that can come to a far-off Western state and remake themselves. But the familial drama in the book is so far from Edenic. It's not paradise there, and it's very, very hard to make it in California. My next pick is the song California by Rufus Wainwright um, from his album Poses. California, California. You're such a wonder that I think I'll stay in bed. He's a better singer than I am. But I chose this song because I think so much of California is about what outsiders think of California. Wainwright's kind of nasally dismissal of California rings very true for me as a native. You know, big-time rollers, part-time models, uh, thousands suffer whiffs of Freon. But I think it gets at this notion of New Yorkers trying to wrap their head around what goes on in California. And every time I go outside of California, I get funny questions like, oh, doesn't everyone wake up before dawn in California? Um, I think this song gets at it really wonderfully in a very funny way. I'm just going to go to bed, sort of. Like, I can't, I can't handle you. I can't handle this, this state. The next item on my list is Six Feet Under, the HBO show created by Alan Ball. 
about the Fisher family who own a funeral home in L.A. Um, I love the darkness of this show. You know, the fact that it's there's so much about death there, and yet that's counteracted with the light of L.A. and the sunniness of it. There's also a surreal quality to the show where some of the family members will occasionally imagine, you know, a dead person speaking. There's a moment where Nate Fisher uh, discovers that his dad had that secret room. What the hell is this place, this music? Since when do you listen to the classics four? What the hell did you do here? Who the hell are you? So many questions. Why couldn't you ask him when I was still alive? I do wonder, how can a place that has such natural beauty also be a manufacturer of fantastical narratives? You know, I my father has this enormous succulent garden with these really insane outer space kind of plants. The more you see that, perhaps like, well, if you can have a plant like this, well, then why can't you have a story like this? guest list from author Eden Lepucky. Her debut novel, California, takes place in a California that's in the midst of an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's fiction for now. Yes, as a Californian, <laughs> I'm hoping the drought and the earthquakes were just a PR stunts for the book. Fingers crossed. Hope so. All right, coming up, actor Daniel Radcliffe reveals a secret. This guy who stands around talking about etymology at parties, that's me. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, etiquette tips from the great-great-granddaughter of Emily Post herself, and rising rocker Benjamin Booker forces America to listen to his favorite party tunes. This is my party. I'm picking the songs, and they got to deal with it. So much for etiquette. Rude. But right now, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week, it's actor Daniel Radcliffe. He's, of course, best known for playing the title role in the blockbuster Harry Potter movie franchise, but he's since earned praise for some very un-Harry-like roles, including a morphine-addled Russian physician in the TV series A Young Doctor's Notebook, which we talked to him about last year. That's right. His latest movie is called What If?, in which he and co-star Zoe Kazan portray a young couple trying to be platonic friends, even though they're falling in love. When I met Daniel, I asked why he chose this as his first romantic comedy role when rom-coms generally, you know, fail. Um, I think the reason a lot of them fail is because people don't realize that you can't just have pretty people and write them jokes. Like, you have to actually get the audience to invest in them. And I think that one of the things that's very hard to do, like, I, I, I don't know if you're married or have a girlfriend, but, but you, if you were writing the story of you and your girlfriend's life and you had to pick the moment where you fell in love and you could only show one scene where the audience sees that immediate connection and, and understands why you go through what you go through for that person. It's a very hard scene to write without beating people over the head with it, often because those moments are very quiet and introspective in some way. And you only maybe even realise it in retrospect. Yeah, absolutely. But but there's, at the beginning of this film, one of the th- I loved the scene where they first meet and they, they talk to each other and it was just so well written because you go, yeah, these guys should be together. This is awesome. They're a great couple. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that first scene. You have said that you were drawn to it because in it, your character corrects your not yet love interests pronunciation of a word. Awkward. Small talk is not my forte. It's four, actually. Forte is Italian. It means forcefully, and four is French for strength. But I still say forte too, because if you say four, everyone thinks you're getting it wrong, even though it is the correct pronunciation. So is that like your thing? Correcting people's pronunciation? Yeah, that's my thing. 
How's it going for you? I have a dead-end job. I live in my sister's attic, and I basically never go out. Uh, correcting pronunciation is my old thing. Actually, my new thing is oversharing. The last time you were on the show, you also told us about a pronunciation. Ye is actually pronounced the. Yeah. The word ye is actually something called a thorn, and it's pronounced differently. Why are you so interested in pronunciation? It is ridiculous, but I love because I think etymology is and pronunciation of things is the story of us. And you can trace all of human society and history and things through those things. Like like you can they can even work out things like where certain foods are native to by what language they're in. Because if you have corn in the country you're from, you just call it corn. You have a word for that. Whereas if you bring it to another country, they don't have a word for it because it's new. So they call it whatever you call it. So you kind of can work, like you can, like etymology is the root of everything. You can sort of trace everything through it, I find. And like, I just, yeah, I find it fascinating. So maybe, did you see in that scene yourself in there? Yeah, I absolutely was like, oh, I can play this guy. Like this, this guy who stands around talking about etymology at parties, that's me. Um, which is, you know, people have different reactions to. I'm happy to do that. Do you have, do you have any recent uh, etymological discoveries? Not, not apart from the fact that I, I read a thing recently on like words that were hated at the time. They were like the LOL and JK of their day. Optimism was a word that people thought was just like an invention of Latin and you could, you know, it was, you know, television is another word people hated because it was Latin and Greek that had been pushed together. There's a quote from somebody in like the 30s, some guy working in England who said, uh, the word is half Latin and half Greek, no good can come of it. Um, (laughs) Complete other side of the spectrum, movie-wise. You were just at Comic-Con. Apparently you dressed as Spider-Man so that you could go incognito, which several stars have done at Comic-Con. But what interested me about it is I was thinking about it. You're also, you're known to be into comic books and and superheroes. And I was like, you could play Peter Parker or some similar kind of hero. But my question was, would you, after having gone through, you know, the Harry Potter films, would you do another big franchise film if Alfred... I would love to do another big franchise film, but I don't know if I'd like to be the lead in it. Like, I'd love to pop up in a franchise or something or, you know, do that. I mean, one of the first things I was offered after Potter was a TV series with a really, you know, an interesting script. But as soon as they said to me, like, if this goes, you'll be signing up for seven years. I was like, okay, no, I'm done. I don't want to... I think doing a film like Potter for so long builds up in you that desire to play as many different types of parts as you can. You know, and I've really been enjoying it since being able to. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rush back. I, I do have to wonder, though, was there, at the end of that series, was there fear, too? I mean, that's a steady gig, and that's something rare for an actor yeah. that you had from a very early age. I mean, you see, like, if you look at the footage of us on the last day and you see me crying those are tears of I don't know what I'm going to do next like I don't know what where I'm going to go this has been my family and my life um there was a moment of real like heartbreak but there was never a time where I was like I don't think I'll make it there were times when you doubt it and there's times when you you know worry about it and and actually you know the thing that really hammers at home is journalists not ones like you but other ones um are coming in thanks are coming in and saying things like you know do you think your best years are behind you have you peaked at 21 or whatever and you go have i and that's terrifying but you but that's the thing i i always knew that i had a piece of information that none of them had about me which was that i was harder working than any of them could have ever predicted or known and you know there's a lot to hard work like it'll get you far we normally ask two questions of 
every guest of honor on the show, you've actually answered one of them, which is what question do you least like to be asked? It's yeah. apparently, are there your best years behind you? Yeah. Which are, your best, are your best years behind you? Anything like that when asking a 20-year-old is, uh, <laughs> you are officially a terrible person if you ever say that to a young person. All right, let's go to our second question, which is kind of the flip of that, yeah. which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. This can be about yourself that you haven't mentioned in an interview, or it could be a piece of trivia. You've already given us a little bit about uh, television. Um, so a blue whale, blue whales have massive mouths, and you would expect that they would be able to swallow huge things whole. But they actually can't. The biggest thing they can swallow is about the size of, like, it, their throat is essentially about the size of a grapefruit, um, which is like us having a throat the size of our belly button. Because they're just used to sifting krill and plankton all the time, and that's all they eat, just, like, gallons of it. Um, so there's that. There you go. Where did you learn that? Um... I think that was on QI, again. It's probably where I got the Thorn thing from as well. QI, for anyone who doesn't know, is a program Stephen Fry hosts in England called the Quite Interesting Program. I'm also learning Japanese at the moment, which is another fun thing which people don't know about me. I'm trying to start learning Japanese for, for a role. And the Japanese language is my new favourite thing, just because the words are amazing and sort of onomatopoeic. But also, like, there are some words for things that don't have Japanese equivalents. So sometimes... To say something in Japanese, you just have to say the word in English in what sounds like a horrendously racist accent. Because, like, literally the word for granola bar is garanola bar. So, um, so there's two, two facts you didn't know before a minute ago. Daniel Radcliffe. He stars with Zoe Kazan in the lovely romantic comedy What If? It's in theaters now. And, Brendan, something interesting about the film... Yeah. A lot of times movies are set in New York, but they're filmed in Toronto to save money, right? Yeah. This one is just straight up set in Toronto. Wow. Weird, right? Well, people are moving so far out of Manhattan for cheap rent. <laughs> yeah. You know. Toronto's going to be a New York suburb any minute, basically. <laughs> That's right. It's a nine hour commute, but hey. It's fun. Healthcare. <laughs> Time to eavesdrop. Brooklyn-based writer Mattia Harvey has published children's books and several collections of poetry. She's been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work can be playful or political, or sometimes both. Mattia's new poetry collection is just out. Today we overhear an excerpt with an otherworldly point of view. Hi, this is Mattia Harvey. I'm going to read from my new collection, If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? It's a book that has poems paired with images, sometimes photographs of miniatures or paper cutout silhouettes. Today I'm going to share with you this poem, which follows a photograph of an empty dollhouse swing set. It's titled, Using a Hula Hoop Can Get You Abducted by Aliens. We've never taken anyone buttoned up and trotting from point A to point B, subway to office, office to lunch, fretting over the credit crunch. Not the ones carefully maneuvering their whatchamacallits alongside broken white lines. Not the leash holders who take their furries to the park 3.5 times per day. If you're an integer in that kind of equation, you belong with your far bits on the ground. We're seven star years past calculus. So it's the dreamy ones who want to go somewhere they don't know how to get to that interest us. The ones who will stare all day at a blank piece of paper or square of canvas 
then peer searchingly into their herbal tea. It's true that hula hoops resemble the rings around first home, and that when you spin, we chime softly, remembering our summer, our spring, and our 12 other seasons. But that's not the only reason. Do we like rhyme? Yes, we do. Also your snow, your moss, your tofu. Our sticky hands make it hard for us to put things down. Don't fret, dreamy spinning ones, with water falling from your faces. It's us you're waiting for. And we're coming. Matia Harvey reading the poem Using a Hula Hoop Can Get You Abducted by Aliens. It's from a brand new collection called If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? We've got more of her poetry on our website. That's dinnerpartydownload.org. And you're listening, maybe from first home, to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us about a dinner party-worthy topic. Today, the subject is narcissism, and our teacher is Jeffrey Kluger. He is an editor-at-large for Time magazine and the author of a number of books, including Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13, which was the basis for the movie Apollo 13. His latest book is called The Narcissist Next Door, Understanding the Monster in Your Family, Your Office, and Your Bed. Jeffrey, can you start us off by sharing a story that you encountered while writing this book that kind of embodies narcissism? So there was a woman who was 85 years old, and she was talking about her past and talked about how she got out of a bad marriage when her husband went to fight World War II. And she said, it makes me wonder if this war was really fought to defeat Hitler or to get me out of a bad situation. <laughs> and she said that shamelessly and yeah. without self-awareness. Uh, it told me a great deal. It's painful. And, and it's actually links to another story in your book of, of Justin Bieber uh, visiting yes. the Anne Frank house. The Anne Frank house, exactly. Justin Bieber, in, upon visiting the Anne Frank house and apparently behaving himself well for most of the time he was there. So, you know, we should grade him on the generous Justin <laughs> He wasn't curve. throwing that eggs was, or He anything. was not throwing <laughs> eggs at anybody. And he signed the guest book at the end along the lines of, uh, Anne was an amazing girl. Hopefully she would have been a believer which left the world slack-jawed because yeah. it suggests that one of the most tragic and iconic figures of the Holocaust can be reduced to whether or not she would have liked young Justin's music. Yes. So so those are extreme examples of narcissists, of narcissistic right. behavior. But what's interesting about your book is that the line between a narcissist and a highly ambitious successful person with good self-esteem is kind of gray and particularly now in this day and age. So what are what is the difference? Well, it's a, it is a continuum and uh it's one of the reasons that the narcissistic personality inventory which scores everybody on a low of a theoretical zero to a high of a 40 uh, can be so beneficial because it really does help show the gradations. This is the standard questionnaire they give right. to people to it's rate. It's a 40 question test. The average person will score between 15 and 16. Mm. Uh, psychopathic killers in a California prison <laughs> scored 21.4. Um, and reality show stars scored a 19.4, which is kind of shocking. Well, what makes some people narcissists and others just 
healthy, functioning citizens? Well, there are a lot of things. Um, certainly, there's a genetic component. Now, a lot of scientists will argue about exactly how uh, heritable the trait is. Another, and I think the prevailing theory here, is what's known as the mask model, of that narcissism is actually a clever guise adopted to mask its exact opposite, which is a deep well of self-loathing, a, a, a well of low self-esteem yeah. rather than high self-esteem, which helps explain why narcissists are so sensitive to criticism, why narcissists tend to to break into, into outrage if yeah. they're criticized, because their self-esteem is actually much more brittle than it seems. And once they're challenged, that mask falls apart. Well, there's another element uh, about narcissists, which I found the most troubling, which is they're mostly oblivious to their narcissism. And that's a real problem because narcissism, like the other personality disorders, is a condition that's known as egocentonic. In other words, the paranoid person really does believe that people are after him. Mm -hmm. And the narcissist really does believe that he or she is better than and more entitled than other people and truly doesn't see why that's not the case. It's in sharp contrast to anxiety disorders like phobias or OCD, which are called egodystonic. The person who comes into a therapist's office for treatment for OCD knows that the behavior is nuts. Yeah. So I feel like I'd be remiss not to talk about social networking in this interview. Mm -hmm. But in reading your book, it seems like maybe it exacerbates existing narcissists, but it's not necessarily creating new ones. So what is the intersection? The intersection, I think, is that, you know, if we were a culture of high-risk alcoholics and suddenly we had Jack Daniels piped into our houses— We'd be feeding that fire. Yeah. Social networking and the internet as a whole seems to have simply landed in an extremely fertile place, in an extremely fertile time in history, when we all have these narcissistic tendencies anyway that, you know, you can go further back into the self-esteem movement and Dr. Yeah. Spock yeah. and, you know, the everybody gets a ribbon at the track meet sort yes, of thing, yes. which preceded uh, the internet. And then you drop the internet into the middle of this yeah. and we've all gone haywire. But we all need some narcissistic attributes. Right? That's, right. That's um, right. And part of the reason is they help people succeed. Although it is frustrating to watch narcissists get rewarded And sometimes they even do better than non-narcissists. Well, that's right. And narcissistic personalities usually do do better than you and me and the average person. We've always seen it in the office. The person who speaks up more at meetings, the person who's more charismatic, who can sell an idea with more excitement and energy. But there is also something to be said about the adaptive benefits of narcissism in the hands of benign people. You know, if you think Martin Luther King or uh, Mohandas Gandhi didn't get a charge out of standing before a crowd and having a quarter of a million or half a million people be moved by their words. And in the case of Gandhi, have an entire nation be moved by what he was thinking. If you think they didn't get a charge out of that, you don't understand human nature. On the other hand, they were equally humble people, so they got it. Well, at least this radio interview was good for both of our egos. We got our names out there. Both our voices are broadcasting across the country from Seattle to uh, Florida. Hope it's okay if we enjoy this moment. Sure, absolutely. You wrote a great book. (laughs) I talked to you about it. Exactly. This is all about us. This is all about us. But (laughs) secretly, I'm thinking it's all about me, as you should be too. (laughs) 
So Rico, right now, narcissists who heard that piece yeah. are thinking to themselves, wow, being a narcissist sounds awful. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then they're like, you know who'd be a good radio host? Me. Right, right. But I, I should say we're unfortunately stuck with narcissists because according to Kluger's book, they actually have lots of sex. This is documented. Wow. Which generally means they have kids who will then grow up to be narcissists. Oh, man. Well, at least we'll never have a politician shortage. Exactly. That's the good news. Ladies and gentlemen, coming up, rocker Benjamin Booker spins us a party playlist, plus Denoli's when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear from musician Benjamin Booker. Plus, we do a survey of new stunt foods. Where we learn about things like rice bun integrity. It is serious stuff. It is. And and speaking of serious issues, it's time to discuss human behavior in the form of our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is our friend Lizzie Post the great-great-granddaughter of etiquette doyenne Emily Post herself. From the Emily Post Institute in Vermont, Lizzie and her family single-handedly keep the world genteel. They're etiquette superheroes. They really are. She's also (laughs) the co-author of several books, including the recent Wedding Etiquette 6th Edition. And Lizzie, you're flying solo today. What did you do with your cousin Dan? Uh, I shipped him off to South Korea two weeks ago. No joke. Literally? Yeah, we got some business in South Korea. Um, There is a focus on business etiquette there, especially learning and being able to work with Western business etiquette skills. So. But instead, right. I brought my trusty dog, Benny, with me. So he's he's wow. with me in well, studio today. Well, <laughs> well I'm not going to talk about the etiquette of bringing a dog to a studio. Yeah, or basically saying that a dog would take the place of your cousin. Of my cousin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's very nice of you. All right, well, let's proceed to the reason you're here. Yes, here's some yes. questions. Sure. We have tons of them that listeners have been sending in. Here is one from Jimbo in Dallas, Pennsylvania. My wife and I, writes Jimbo, frequently attend events with our friends. While greeting the other women slash wives at these events, is it always appropriate to do so with a cheek kiss? Hmm. What about in a situation where there are close friends with whom I'd be comfortable with a cheek kiss, but maybe also some acquaintances with whom I'm not so close? Is it impolite to kiss one person and offer a handshake to another? Yeah, he's he's right to know that it's different depending on who you're greeting. It's not impolite at all if there are people at the party with whom you're much closer. And so you give the kiss and the hug to them and then other people who you might be meeting for the first or second time. So yeah. you give a handshake to them. Yeah. But no matter what, make your greeting warm and welcoming and you'll do just fine. But the other thing, of course, is that this is kind of a country specific issue, right? In America, there's a question, but in Europe, in many countries, it's... Yeah, it's just normal. Yeah, but in Europe, you have to be careful. There's the double kiss versus the triple kiss. Mm. I'm not making this up. So some cultures, I know in Croatia, you kiss on each side of the cheek, greeting man or woman, but if you're in Serbia, you do three sides, you know, back and forth and back. No what kidding. happens if you make the mistake? If you do that in Croatia with the triple kiss, then they're like, what are you They so- give you a leg sweep and, <laughs> and pour red wine on your head. So, um, Sounds be- fun. Well, that might not be too bad. Yeah, it sounds like a party. <laughs> and that's actually how I greet people in my neighborhood. So, all right. Our next question comes from Brittany in Guelph, 
Ontario, Canada. Wow. And Brittany writes, I work in a very open floor plan building and there is a whistler among us. Oof. I can hear him whistle <laughs> whether he's on the top floor of our building or the first floor. I figured out it's the daily maintenance worker. Oh. He's very nice, but I just can't handle the whistling. Is it appropriate to talk to him or should I simmer at my desk quietly? Oh, man, this is a, this is a tough one. This I, is. Um, Dan's not here to help you now, Lizzie. No, what are we? Benny, quick, what do you think? He's like, I love whistling, Mom. Exactly. Um, if you can get over it, I would really suggest you get over it because this guy's just going about his job and probably not even aware he's doing it and it bothers anybody. Um, but you probably wouldn't be writing to us if you could ignore right. it. But I'm just wondering if it's only her and this is like that thing that she's picked out that's freaking yes. her out. Yeah. And that's why I kind of want to say go to HR just to talk to them about, look, this is driving me nuts. I don't know if I should just get over it, if mm. it's okay for me to be wearing headphones. Because I'm not that comfortable with you going up to the custodial staff and saying you should be behaving like this. Yeah. What about a middle ground? I think demand a corner office. <laughs> I need a door. Yes. I need a door. That always this is a works. great reason to ask for a promotion. There you go. Kick out the CEO and install me due to whistling. <laughs> Brittany, we gave you several strategies. Yeah. Pick one. Yes. We hope something feels right because there is no really great answer to that question. Right. And also, if, if the whistle you're hearing is, <whistles> that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Whole different thing. And you should feel comfortable going to HR. And here's Daniel in Havertown, Pennsylvania. And Daniel writes, my wife and I have a running debate about what it means to a server when silverware is placed on a plate at the end of a meal. <laughs> Are there messages being sent depending on how the flatware is arranged? Is there yes. a correct way to signal that the plate is ready to be removed? Yes. I Well, Brendan's got the answer. I want to hear what you have to I say. I know. I'm like Go going, ahead. he's answered it twice. Yes. The answer <laughs> is yes. When you're finished, you place your fork and knife with the tines of the fork and the blade of the knife kind of near the middle of the plate and the handles right at about where the number four on a clock would be. And the tines, uh, most people do tines up so that it's not scratching the plate. Oh, man. You know, I know it gets technical. So there's a reason for no it. I had no idea. The reason oh, yeah. that you signal this is, A, to signal that you're finished to the server, but it's also placed in that four position because during formal service, you always retrieve on the right. So if you think about it, a server can come in yeah. on the right side of you very easily, secure your silverware so it doesn't with, slide off the plate. With their thumb. With their thumb right. and mm -hmm. remove it. And that's that's why. Where are you having dinner? I mean, are you having dinner at palaces? Or no, this is, at this is like... Downton Abbey? But this is, this is classic <laughs> etiquette, though. Her great-great-grandmother probably was. It very much so. Well, not palaces, but we don't have servants, but you do have servers. You've got waiters and waitresses. You know what I mean? I like that there's a real reason because some of these rules you're like was great great grandma Emily Post just like eh, I'm gonna put him here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. left I think that looks pretty <laughs> exactly I like it there I'm left-handed I will defend her to the end and say that she was an incredibly practical woman and if it made sense it stuck around and if it didn't make sense anymore out it went all right Lizzie Post we're gonna <laughs> remove the microphone from the right and thanks for coming by take care guys thanks so much Lizzie Post, assisted silently by Benny. Yay. They are a dynamic etiquette duo. They are, but Lizzie just launched a brand new podcast with her regular cohort, Daniel Post-Senning. It's called Awesome Etiquette, and it is one of several shows on American Public Media's new podcast network called Infinite Guest. Another Infinite Guest show? Well, the dinner party download. Oh, I've heard wonderful things about that program. It's okay. You can learn more about <laughs> it at infiniteguest.org. 
And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Enrico, I think we've both noticed a lot of what I'm going to call stunt foods cropping up lately. That's right. These are kind of uh, food hybrids like the cronut. Exactly, mashups. And we've covered these sorts of items before because they're novel and sometimes tasty, but it's kind of getting to be a little too much, right? Yeah, we might be entering peak stunt. That is, is a sense. distinct possibility. So to talk about this, I invited Yahoo Food editor Julia Bainbridge to meet me at Di Roberti's Pasticceria. That's an old Italian bakery in Manhattan where they just introduced the Dinoli, a donut cannoli hybrid. As always with these things, that sounds ridiculous and I want to eat one. Yeah, we started by doing that. All right, so we're looking, we're looking at Dinoli's. <laughs> what do you think so far? I mean, it looks like... Uh... I mean, basically like a profiterole that's been chocolate dipped. But... That shows how sophisticated you are. I, it looks like a Boston cream donut to me. You're right. It does. Let's talk about this. A Denoli. You know, when you see something like this, what are your thoughts as, as a food editor? I think because we see so many of these mashups, I immediately kind of roll my eyes and think, oh, this is just a marketing ploy. But if you remove that and think about the people creating the food... Um, you know, somebody had a creative idea. And it has to start somewhere, right? Because some great inventions are mashups. Some great mashups come from happy mistakes, like dipping a bit of your bacon into the syrup. And then, I mean, that's sort of what provided the foundation for things like the waffle taco and... The waffle taco. These sweet and salty mashups. I mean, that's a good flavor combination. And so... So we should be open to these things. But yet, I see them and I'm like, do I really need to talk about the origin? It's not like, you know, oh, my great-grandfather smuggled in this recipe. It's like, no, we were thinking about how the cronut is successful, and now we need some kind of shiny object. I'm down with shiny objects. I mean, as long as they're good. All right, well, let's try this shiny object. So first of all, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Pretty good, but well, part of the charm of the cannoli is the crunch. The crunch. I mean, this is basically a Boston cream donut. It's also missing the... Um, chocolate chips at the end of the cannoli. Yeah. But you know what? This is, a, this is a noble try. And this is a beautiful old shop we're in. And they have other wonderful goodies. So maybe this will bring people in. Maybe it's okay to have this as a lore. Right. You can't have this conversation with talking about Dominique Ansel, who invented the cronut um, and the cookie shot. And it seems like every season he's coming up with more of these things because it's, it's been a successful business model. And these, these are, you know, his sort of billboard items. But um, that gets people in the door and then you discover or maybe are reminded that Dominique Ancel is this classically trained chef who's making, you know, beautiful palmier and macaron and, you know, all of those classic things. So, so sure, if it takes a little, like, razzle-dazzle to get you in the door, you know, great. But if, if you're someone like Ancel who has a bunch of other things to offer then there you have a uh, successful business and a place to, you know, a reason to keep going back. So there's some other things that happened this summer that are mashups that, and, and you've covered a few of them at your website. So tell me about the rice burger. I, I, I think it's kind of a great idea. The bun is a rice patty. It's not like a rice cake. It's like a sticky rice. Yeah, sticky rice, but pressed fine and then fried or griddled so the outside gets really crunchy. Alex Van Buren, who's my colleague, got a cab and frantically drove over there the minute she heard they were happening. And what was her take? She thought she, she doesn't want her burger and sushi together, basically. 
<laughs> I I uh, am more open to the idea because I think if you do go to Japan, you do see um, hot foods and and rice uh, together, and you see um, in the kind of portable sushi that I forget what they're called, those little triangular things that are wrapped in nori. This kind of portable, almost burrito <laughs> burrito sushi made with not necessarily raw fish is everywhere. This is not this may be a new thing to us, but not to the Japanese. My question would be the integrity of the rice bun. I mean, if you're having a really good juicy burger, how does the rice stay bunny? That is, I think, where she found the flaw and that's where they need some work. Rice bun integrity? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the ramen burger too, I, I, there's a bun that would seem to me even harder to, for those noodles to stay together. I mean, rice, you release all that starch and so they kind of, each little granule holds on to each other. But noodles, I mean, how does that work except for a bunch of fat holding together each noodle? Well, okay, so you brought up the ramen burger. So that's another thing that's been happening in this kind of world. People know of ramen burgers. It's a tenacious food meme, <laughs> Frankenfood, that's still around. Um, but they're also introducing ramen fries. They look like potato wedges made of ramen. I think it could work. I mean, this is drinking food, right? Great. All you want is salt, crunch, and carb. And it's a gimmick, so people keep spending money. Right. Where mashups are good in general is, I think, in opening people's minds, right? Like, I'm all about more people cooking at home. If mashups inspire people to try combinations they didn't before or inspire people to kind of off-road from recipes, they sort of deformalize this whole process, great. And if it gets them having a playful attitude towards cooking and that this can be fun, then I'm all for it. I'm pretty sure that this denoli is going to get me into a coma as opposed to the kitchen. So, Brendan, it sounds like your opinion of these foods is a hybrid. Ah. You kind of like them and you kind of find them precious. I guess that's true. Most of them won't become classics, no. but the whole practice serves a purpose, you know? Okay. Like, where would we be without a gin and tonic mashup? <laughs> We'd be cavemen. Thirsty caveman. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've learned some manners, sampled some tasty food. There's just one thing missing from this dinner party, music. And here with that is young New Orleans musician Benjamin Booker. His raw mix of punky blues and rock caught the ear of Jack White, who picked him as his tour mate. And he's got a debut album that's drawing raves. Here he is with a list of tunes to kickstart a party. Hey, this is Benjamin Booker, and uh, I just had an album come out. It's my first album. And here is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song would probably be Stoned and Starving by Parquet Courts because if I'm having a dinner party, people need to come starve. Parquet Courts is a New York band that originated in Texas. I was walking through Ridgewood, Queens. I was flipping through magazines. I was so starving. I guess they've been described sometimes as cowpunk, but it's just guitar rock, like amazing guitar rock. They'll have like a really catchy groove going on and then just break out into like ruckusy noise. I mean, I guess I've had this problem at parties before uh, with my choices, I guess, for dinner parties. And maybe it's like a little too heavy, but you know, you're this is my party. <laughs> I'm picking the songs and they gotta deal with it. And uh, if this is before we're eating, I think it's okay. I think it's fine to have a little feedback. Song number two is Any Other Way by Jackie Shane. Uh, and 
I'm doing the live in 63, I believe it is, version. Here you come again. You say that you're my friend. Jackie Shane is an R&B singer from Toronto, I believe, who used to wear like women's clothing and like uh, dress up like this black soul singer cross-dressing guy. And it's the most incredible stuff that you've ever heard. Tell her that I'm happy. Be sure and tell her this. Tell her that I'm gay. I don't think people know very much about this guy. And that's what makes it so crazy. It's like, what was happening in Toronto that you have this guy who's doing stuff that's completely taboo in the early 60s? Where does he come from? I don't know. You tell me. You tell me. (laughs) This is uh, the part where we're having food. It's good background music, you know. Soft, but uh, also, like, entertaining. People might stop eating for a second and be like, oh, what is this? And I'll be like, oh, it's Jackie Shane. (laughs) Now that's all I've got to say, my friend. We'd better say goodbye. This is the last song for song number three is William Onyebor, Why Go to War. He's this very uh, enigmatic character. Apparently he had gone to like film school or something in Russia. Uh, he's from Africa. Came back to Africa with like all of these keyboards and stuff like that and just started making ridiculous wild synth music. He was doing stuff that I guess a lot of people couldn't do because he was somehow like independently wealthy for some reason and was the only person in Africa who had this kind of equipment. So he, he's getting incorporated in the 70s like dance music with some African stuff and it's it's really cool stuff. Why go to war? Why not the end of the party, you know, some people might be dancing, but like people are getting to know each other. Maybe they're talking a little bit. The song's an anti-war, like, protest song, but also a dance song. So maybe so while those other people are dancing, the other people are talking about uh, politics, you know. You gotta, you gotta get everybody uh, happy at the end. Some people, don't, some people don't like to dance. I'm not a dancer. If I had to pick one of my own songs for a dinner party, I'd probably pick Have You Seen My Son, just because it's got a few different parts in it, some slower, but also some, like, upbeat, wild, uh, freak-out moments. Yeah, I think it'd be cool. It'd be interesting uh, to see what people think. Dinner Party soundtrack from Benjamin Booker, 
His debut album just came out, and he launches a headlining tour in September, and that's the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. Yes, but you can find us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle at both is Dinner Party DNLD. Meanwhile, please know Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin handles digital stuff. Ravi Carmen engineered this week. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And a special thanks to our fantastic intern, Esther Mania. We seek someone to fill her shoes. Let us know if that's you. Bon appétit.